Welcome to this episode of KDGO Conversations in Nephrology. This episode, titled Applying CKD Interventions, is provided by KDGO and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Lin. Hello and welcome to KDGO Conversations in Nephrology. I'm Dr. Peter Lin, Director of Primary Care Initiatives at the Canadian Heart Research Centre and a family physician in Toronto, Canada. And joining me today to discuss the importance of applying CKD interventions is Dr. Joel Toff, who is an Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine. But Joel is really famous for his Twitter account, Kidney Boy, uh, where he discusses all things kidney. He is also the co-founder of Neff Madness and Neff JC, a journal club, uh, and he's also the host of the Freely Filtered podcast. So, Joel, welcome to this program. Peter, I'm really glad to be here. I'm a huge KDGO stan. Awesome. Awesome. Let's get started. Let's go back to basics, Joel. Let's talk about salt. What's the latest in the sodium story and what's the latest thinking and how do you explain sodium intake and diets to your patients? Yeah, Peter, like everything in medicine, what we thought was simple, the more we looked into it became more complex. So sodium has been like the common villain in nephrology for 50, 60, 70 years. And we, the advice has always been reduce your sodium intake, reduce your sodium intake. And as we've looked into it more and more, it's more complex than that. And it does seem that the ratio of sodium to potassium intake is what's really important. And that in addition to trying to lower your sodium, you want to increase your potassium intake for optimal vascular health. And we're seeing that vascular health pay dividends in terms of reduced cardiovascular disease and reduced chronic kidney disease. So getting that ratio, and it's not just reducing the sodium, but making sure patients get a rich source of potassium in that diet. And it kind of rings true when you kind of think about in your mind, what's a healthy diet? You think of fruits and vegetables, and those are all going to be rich in potassium. And that's just a, a real important part of that. This was best demonstrated in the recently published SAS trial. That's S-S-A-S-S. This came out of rural China, where they replaced the usual high quality sodium chloride that patients use in their salt shakers with a mixture of sodium chloride and potassium chloride. And so villages that were randomized to the potassium chloride intervention, those villagers had modestly reduced sodium intake, but a pretty significant increase in their daily potassium intake. And then they followed them for a few years and they saw reductions in stroke and cardiovascular disease. And so pretty nice demonstration that it's not just the sodium, that it's the sodium plus the decrease in sodium and an increase in potassium intake. And this is something that I find that when I talk to my patients, they're all hungry for nutritional information. A lot of my patients really want to know, hey, what kind of lifestyle modifications, what can I do besides just taking this pill? Can I do to minimize my risk of being on dialysis? And I think this is good advice and something that people can really operationalize. And that makes a lot of sense. It's the balancing act that's important as opposed to one component or the other. So the ratio is important and that's something that we didn't know about. So thanks for bringing that up. The other thing is that when patients reach out for just kind of dietary guidelines, just using general internet, what they often see is reduce the potassium intake, which is you know good advice if you're in very late stage CKD, getting close to dialysis where potassium becomes a real issue. But the, for the vast majority of our CKD patients, you know potassium balance is just not an issue for them, and that you know having them restrict potassium there is probably pushing them towards a diet that's not so good for them. 
Oh, that makes sense. Because we always thought about reducing potassium, reducing sodium, reducing all of these things. But what you're saying is that in the early stages, that balancing acts between sodium and potassium is really important. And not just in terms of kidneys, but in terms of cardiovascular risk as well. Absolutely. So, Joel, there's been a lot of excitement in the last five years about SGLT2 inhibitor trials and things like that. I've never seen nephrologists so happy uh, in my life. And are we using enough of this uh, SGLT2? And, and specifically, which patients are you putting on SGLT2 inhibitors? Well, Peter, I love the flozins. And so we need to get away from this SGLT2 inhibitors. They're our friends. Let's call them by their name. They're our flozins. So I'm a flozinator, right? Every day I get up and I look in the mirror and I said, who am I going to flozinate today? And I've been very aggressive about getting my patients on flozins, and I'm finding it harder and harder to find new patients because the majority of my CKD patients now are on flozins. Last November, we had the announcement and simultaneous publication of EMPA kidney, which was an important piece of evidence in the chain of evidence that we have for flozins in CKD. What EMPA kidney brought to the table was it lowered the GFR from the previous record of 25 milliliters per minute down to 20 milliliters per minute. And so that was kind of a new record for how low the GFR can go, but we see benefit in these patients. The other thing that it did is it randomized patients both without diabetes and without proteinuria. A lot of the earlier CKD data had only enrolled patients uh, with proteinuria. It was one of the enrollment criteria, but uh, EMPA kidney did have a tranche of patients that had no proteinuria. And Though, if you just look in that group in isolation, they didn't reach the primary endpoint. If you look at the slope of GFR, which is going to be less sensitive to events, right? Because the primary endpoint was a doubling of serum creatinine initiation of dialysis. And those patients have a very slow progression, right? They don't have proteinuria. They don't have one of the major risk factors for progression of CKD. But if you look at the slope of GFR, they did have a beneficial effect on slope. And that really reassured me that this is really a drug for all my patients. And then honestly, Peter, if you're skeptical about that slope because it wasn't the primary outcome, you could just take a look at the cardiovascular data. The cardiovascular data enrolled lots of patients without proteinuria, and they also had lots of cardiovascular benefits. And I think that's a kind of a, a belt and suspenders approach to this drug is that, you know, it clearly is good for the kidneys, but the vast majority of uh, patients with even with advanced CKD will die of cardiovascular disease before they get to dialysis. And that, that's no in no way is that a win. But having a drug that prevents heart failure and prevents admissions from heart failure and prevents death, the cardiovascular death, that's also indicated in CKD is perfect. And that's what we have with the flozins. Either way you look or any way you justify it to the patients, whether you if they have particular fears about dialysis, you're like, this is great for dialysis, or they have a sketchy heart history. You're like, well, this is one of the most powerful heart medications we've ever had, really. And the only medicine we've had that's been able to help patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So these are you know, breakthrough medications, and I am using them every which way but left. You know, in addition to lack of proteinuria and lack of GFR, they have a role in patients that have borderline hyperkalemia. They reduce episodes of hyperkalemia. Their data came out, meta-analysis of closins showed that they reduced episodes of acute kidney injury. They really are breakthrough medications, and I'm trying to get as many patients on them as possible. 
That makes a lot of sense. And all the studies are pointing in that direction. And initially, we didn't think that these were great drugs, right? But now they're showing up everywhere. So as you said, in cardiovascular patients, they were also good for kidney disease. In heart failure patients, good for heart failure, good for kidney disease. And we're now branching out from diabetes to non-diabetes patients and having those same benefits. So you're absolutely right. It seems like the population um, that would benefit from this is actually quite large now. Yeah. And we didn't even touch on the glomerulonephritis population. This is another group you know, clearly shown in IgA to have a real powerful renal protective effect in the IgA population. And I think we're going to see additional data coming down the pipe, lupus, membranous, FSGS. You know, that is not there yet. Those are harder groups to gather. But my sense is we're going to just see this kind of knock off one population after another. That's great. So therefore, more and more patients will come into the funnel where they're going to be using this, as opposed to these drugs are for these specific patients. That net is actually getting very, very large now. Yeah, it's just a generic kidney health medicine. Is a, it might be a, re, a reasonable way to think about it. And a, a drug is incredibly well tolerated. You know, part of me thinks, oh, a drug that's that good probably has a lot of nasty side effects. And part of the reason that people are such fans of the drug is that it really does. It's a pretty clean profile. The drug is well tolerated. You know, probably the most ringing endorsement is that in the placebo-controlled trials, there was no difference in patients discontinuing the drug from the placebo, which is kind of unheard of. Always, you know, patients on the active group have more discontinuation, more side effects. We're just not seeing that. It's amazing. For those tuning in, you're listening to KDECO podcast on CKD interventions. I'm Dr. Peter Lin, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Toff. So, okay, Joel, besides SGLT2 inhibitors and I think RAS inhibitors, what are other new treatments or interventions that you're using on your patients now? Yeah, the thing that I'm finding that's changing my practice is we now have a few different choices for patient-tolerable and effective potassium binders, right? You know, for much of my career, when we said potassium binders, the only story there was k which was a medication that patients hated, couldn't tolerate, didn't taste good, caused diarrhea, caused constipation, and the idea of using it chronically so that you could maintain an ACE inhibitor, I, I would never entertain it because it was such a miserable drug to be on. But with uh, patiramir and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, these drugs are well-tolerated. Patients take them. They don't have any trouble with it. And I am finding myself reaching for those more and more in select situations. You know, patients that I really feel strongly that we need to keep them on an ACE inhibitor, you know, patients with advanced heart failure, patients with significant proteinuria, you know, RAS inhibition in those situations is literally life-saving. And if I need to give the patient a potassium binder that they take, you know, most of my patients don't even need to take it daily. You know, three days a week is usually enough to keep their potassium safe. That's huge, right? And I think that's going to make a huge difference for these patients. And, the, you know, in addition, you know, the new kid on the block, Finerino, you know, this is a drug that has significant hyperkalemia, right? They didn't even enroll patients. Potassium is more than 4.7. And so patients, you know, solidly in the normal range of potassium weren't enrolled in the pivotal trials, Figaro and Fidelio, if their potassium was at the upper limit of normal. Well, you know, here's a way that you might be able to get your patients to either start the drug or stay on it if the potassium drifts up. And I think that's also going to pay benefits. So I think it's a pretty important advancement having a tolerable potassium binder that's available for patients. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense because if you can offer a tolerable potassium binder, it allows you to keep all your other drugs, you know, as you were saying, the RAS blockers, et cetera, uh, which is one of the things that we used to be very afraid of, but now you have an option around that. So that's actually very good. 
Now, when I was in medical school, Joel, last century, I guess it was, uh, basically CKD seemed like a very gloomy, doomy kind of space. Um, how do you see CKD now as we're moving forward in uh, 2023 and forward? Peter, you just got to remember how new this field was. If you were in medical school in the last century, we didn't even call it CKD. It was chronic renal insufficiency. We know really, like, you know, that was the big advancement around what 2000 or 2001 was. Let's establish this field of chronic kidney disease. Let's understand that if we're going to help patients that are headed towards dialysis or to have chronic kidney disease, we need to have a language to talk about it, staging to grade these patients. And so, you know, you go back 25 years, we're really starting from the very first steps. Hey, let's figure out the names to call this. And But you're right. Since then, you know, at that time we had ACE inhibitors, ARBs were still on patent. We were talking about them as being the expensive medication. And now you look around and we have just a, an embarrassment for riches, an incredible new, new number of tools that are available to us with a robust evidence base where you can really know, hey, this stuff really works and it really works across these populations. Really, really is amazing. But it's not only in CKD, the nephrologists are happy because we're having new tools to treat glomerulonephritis, right? We're getting new tools to modify the complement cascade, probably something that we didn't even understand when you were in medical school in terms of its importance for glomerulonephritis and renal damage. And now we're getting multiple, you know, already have some tools available and additional drugs that are on the way. I think that those are going to be revolutionary. We're having new medications that are designed solely for dealing with the symptoms of uremia. I'm thinking of uh, diphalecophalin for itch. You know, these patients that have had CKD-associated pruritus, you know, we'd give them some Benadryl and, and cross our fingers knowing that it really didn't work. And now we have a specific medication for this therapy that's fairly effective. It's amazing the opportunities that are out there. And then, you know, we have a new endothelial antagonists, which are, you know, the first one now approved for IgA nephropathy. And I think that's going to be a, a drug that will find additional uses in other GNs. It's really important. And the other thing is on the side of diagnosis. You know, in the past, we were limited to kidney biopsies. And now we have uh, genetic tests that are becoming much more affordable and opening up much more precision in the way of diagnosis. So it really is an amazing time to be a nephrologist. And I guess I'm not the only one who's really happy about it. And I'm glad that you're seeing that. And all these tools, uh, whether they're diagnostic or therapeutics, uh, we need to know how to use them. And it's uh, almost impossible to keep up. So I'm glad that uh, KD goes here, uh, lighting the way forward. That's great, Joel. So basically, you're telling us that uh, there's a lot of positive news in this space. I think this is a great recruitment program for nephrologists because everybody's excited about this field. So basically, you're telling us that there are a lot of things that we can do to help improve the lives of our patients with CKD, ranging from RAS blockade to SGLT2 inhibitors, MRAs, potassium binders, et cetera, et cetera. And as you said, riches of uh, treatment, which is fantastic. And I guess the key is that we need to make sure that our patients are getting those treatments so that they can lead better lives. So Thank you, Joel, for all your Twitter efforts on keeping us up to date with new CKD developments. And thank you for taking the time today to share your insights on CKD interventions. Glad to be here. This was excellent. Thank you. I'm Dr. Peter Lin signing off. If you'd like to listen to this or other episodes in our series, please visit kdco.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.